Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the world. I am Misha Oslin, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, your co-host, along with my partner in crime, John Yu, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley. John, say hello to everyone. Hello, everybody. How are you doing out there? We uh we we have some hot days here in DC. Hit over ninety today. Uh, it's been pretty warm here, but not warm enough to stop the rioters and looters from showing up outside. Uh, they really uh, went after downtown Oakland and down a little town called Emeryville, which is right next to Oakland, between Oakland and Berkeley. But hopefully, things have started to calm down. Um, maybe President Trump's starting to talk about the Insurrection Act of 1807 got people's attention. But, well, we'll uh, go any farther back, we'll be at the the Embargo Act or or the Sedition and Alien Acts. Um, we're we're getting there. I think uh, I, I I didn't realize there's actually probably a benefit to living in D.C., which is that uh, you um you know they really can't let D.C. go you know all the way. And uh, you know whereas we got a lot of people worried in a lot of places, D.C.'s actually. Return to some some relative calm, though it was reaching Good. up into some of the tonier areas. So um, we'll see what happens. But uh, we're not here to talk about D.C. We're not here to talk about the Bay Area. We're here to talk about the Pacific, and uh, we are also here to be to be educated tonight. And we have a, a fantastic guest, and we are honored to have Representative Mike Gallagher join us. Um, for those of you who don't know. Uh, Representative Gallagher. He is one of the leading young voices in Congress. Um, he is from Wisconsin, the 8th District, I believe, uh, which is Green Bay. And as a Chicagoan, I'm sorry, I simply have to say the Bears. Uh, and now we can move on after that. Um, Mike is a uh, um, someone who has an incredibly wide array of experiences bringing to Congress as opposed to sometimes what you see with with folks having been very local and and only spending their time there. Um, he is a retired captain in the U.S. Marine Corps, first of all, and a combat veteran uh, in military intelligence. Um, beyond that, uh, after getting his uh, bachelor's degree at Princeton, he went on and jumped into the graduate school waters and actually got a Ph.D., uh, from Georgetown University as well. Uh, he served as a congressional staffer and then made the jump into elected life himself. So we are absolutely thrilled uh, to have Representative Gallagher on the show. Mike, welcome. Hey, it is an honor to be with you, even when you're not so subtly putting Bears references in your opener. I will not let that aggression stand. <laughs> Oh, look, as an Eagles fan, we know how oh, Chicago. I mean, oh. Chicago fans are. I mean, that's sad. But didn't you guys just pick up the Eagles backup quarterback? Maybe you're going to win a few games this year. Well, I'm in a, in a, I'm in like a tailspin after the draft where we did not draft a wide receiver, despite it being <laughs> the richest wide receiver draft in modern American history. And so I've go, I've gone from you know uh, optimism about winning a Super Bowl this year to complete pessimism. <laughs> well, now you know how Bears fans feel. So you're you're right up there with us. Um, 
whether or not we're going to get back to football, I mean, I'm, I'm really a baseball fan. So already the summer has been shot uh, and can't watch the Cubs yet again attempt to climb to greatness. So uh, I'm, I'm happy, in fact, to, to talk about the collapse of order in the Indo-Pacific. Why not? Um, That's there's right. nothing else to do. So I, I wanted to start, actually, though, because, you know, Mike, we've we've had uh, a lot of folks on, um, you know, who are scholars. Uh, we have not had nearly as many who are, are policymakers. Um, and we often miss that, that compared obviously to when you were involved, when you were in the Marines, when you were deployed, um, when the focus was all on the Middle East, obviously Washington's focus is in general, in terms of foreign policy is greatly on Asia now. And it's changing in, in the, the extent to which our elected leaders are actually, uh, looking at the set of issues. And you told me, uh, that recently there was a new China study group that was formed in the House. And and just to sort of set us up for the types of issues that um, we'll talk about, uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. What is it? Who's on it? Uh, wh- why did it come about? And what are you guys doing with it? So absolutely. First, a, a quick note on just the, the policymaker versus uh, scholar gap. I always think about this moment when I was working on the the Walker campaign when he ran for president and I was the foreign policy guy, the foreign policy director, national security advisor, whatever you want to call it. And I just I kept thinking if only we could publish a foreign affairs article that would turn the entire campaign around. And it, it took me a while before I realized that that was not exactly like no one reads foreign affairs. Even card carrying CFR members don't read foreign affairs. And certainly that's not something that's going to uh, uh, you know, turn an election. And so I do think there's a lot of work to be done on bridging the gap, because unfortunately, to get anything effectuated by policy, there has to be political support for it uh, or most of the time. Um, I do think, however, though, and to connect it to your actual question, it is remarkable to see the amount of bipartisan political consensus there is on the China issue. In other words, I don't see even President Trump's biggest detractors questioning the premise of his national security strategy or national defense strategy, which is to say China is the pacing threat and therefore Indo-PACOM is the priority theater. Now we're having disagreements about how to do great power competition well, you know, how to confront China. Uh, but I, I think it is remarkable just in three short years how quickly that new consensus has congealed. But also unfortunate that this task force that you reference is going to be a purely Republican eff- uh, effort. Uh, we're trying to recruit some Democrats onto it. Uh, right now, it's a group of about 12 members from a variety of different committees, all on the Republican side because Nancy Pelosi pulled out of it and won't let her members participate. But I know for a fact there are young, smart, national security focused Democrats that want to be part of this. And so hopefully we can do that. But we're really going to be, you know, we hope not to write a report that just collects dust on a shelf somewhere. We really are trying to put together a framework for action, given that there's been an enormous influx of China related legislation over the last three years. I think a lion's share of what this task force is going to be doing is simply organizing all the efforts that are out there prioritizing them and putting them in a framework that makes sense for competing with China militarily, economically, um, uh, you know, in terms of tech, uh, ideologically, et cetera. We've each been assigned to two subcommittees 
I'm on the tech competition subcommittee as well as the ideological warfare subcommittee. And so I'm really optimistic about the report we can produce uh, by early October, uh, which also we will submit an interim report on the origins of coronavirus and the behavior of the Chinese Communist Party. But I really want to commend Chairman uh, Mike McCall, who's leading the effort, and uh, leader Kevin McCarthy, whose idea the whole thing was, and I'm really excited about it. So how does that work then with the Trump administration? Uh, we had just last week the release of the United States strategy towards the People's Republic of China, which was actually, I found a, a fascinating document uh, that really changed uh, the the specific focus the U.S. has had in terms of engagement with China over the past 40 years. Um, you know, you have uh, Matt Pottinger, uh, Deputy National Security Advisor, who's really been point on a lot of these things. Of course, you've got Lighthizer over at uh, at USTR. How do you guys then fit in with what the administration is doing in terms of, of uh, sort of day-to-day -day policy in, in creating this larger framework that you were talking about? So uh, we are working very closely with the administration. The administration hosted the task force last week for a briefing with the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, uh, and with Deputy National Security Advisor, Matt Pottinger, uh, Assistant Secretary of State Stilwell, also briefed us. Uh, they've been exceptionally cooperative and forthcoming in terms of working with us already. But really, we're trying not to recreate what they've already done with the strategy that you referenced, as well as the broader national security strategy, as well as the litany of studies that, that the administration has produced often in response to you know, a congressional mandate, some reporting requirement we've put in the National Defense Authorization Act. In fact, including some good work from the Pentagon on expanding uh, Chinese global access and things like that, that I commend that I, I I put the re reporting requirement into law and then I quickly realized I was the only one who read the report. Um, so we need to do a better job of, of uh, promoting it. Uh, but I do think we're going to try and stay focused on our lane. And our lane is as the legislative branch of government, really, you know, in my ideal world. And again, I'm not the chairman. I'm just trying to contribute. You know, we would have a let's let's consider each subcommittee a a chapter, a very short chapter framing the problem, but really one that culminates in a legislative plan of action. You can imagine here are the 10 bills that are out there right now that we could pass tomorrow that would put us on better footing in terms of um, competing with the Chi uh, Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and what's gonna be interesting about that is that even if we don't convince the Democrats to come on board with the China task force, most of those bills are bipartisan bills. Look at bills that have just recently passed the House. I think we just passed on a vote of about 425 to one uh, a tough bill calling out the CCP for its treatment of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang province. In fact, perhaps the most outsp uh, outspoken critic of the CCP on that issue has been Ilhan Omar, whose rhetoric on forced labor of Uyghur Muslims has been indistinguishable at times from the rhetoric of hawkish uh, Republican senators like Marco Rubio, who are human rights champions. And so I think this just creates strange bedfellows. Another example is, you know, when I sent a letter to the NBA criticizing the way they shut down Daryl Morey when he tweeted support for the Hong Kong protesters, the signatories were not just Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz. It also included AOC. I mean, show me another issue in American politics that unites AOC and Tom Cotton right now. So I think we have a huge opportunity. It's, of course, important to ensure that we don't go overboard. I do think there's a bit of a political incentive to kind of out hawk everybody right now and, and stake out unique territory on China. But I'm really encouraged by what I've seen from a lot of my colleagues in the House and the Senate. 
uh, Mike, I've got one more question before I turn it over to John. And, and you mentioned that a lot of this is about legislation. I've said what you what you guys do in Congress. And uh, I want I'd like to ask about a specific piece and a piece that that you help uh, introduce that you co-sponsored, and that is the Endless Frontiers Act. Um, you mentioned a little bit earlier that one of your subcommittees is uh, on tech, uh, and clearly uh, that really, in in many ways, it's it's sort of the core of the competition we have with China, because that is what leads to uh, national strength. It's what leads to economic dominance. And then that, of course, powers a military uh, and feeds a military. So the tech the tech side of things, and look at the same thing in our history, uh, is really crucial. Um, we've slipped. This is not the Cold War. Uh, you've introduced an act that uh, we, uh, means to change that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what this this act is and, and what you what you see it doing, what you hope it'll do? Well, this is not the Cold War, but I would like to debate with you at some point whether this is a new Cold War, because I do think there are interesting parallels, but also significant and interesting uh, differences. But the yeah, biggest, uh, by the way, I'm sorry, I just I just meant to say that we're not acting, um, we're not funding things the way we did in the Cold War. I'm sorry, I, I we are really much in in a deep, serious competition, so we're probably on the same side with that. Yeah, I'm try- who gets credit for that? I know I know Walter Russell Mead sort of had an op-ed saying, did Cold War II just begin the week after Pence's speech at Hudson? Uh, Neil Ferguson has been using the phrase. Even Henry Kissinger conceded we're in the foothills of a cold, foothills of a cold war, I think was the phrase he used. But uh, I, for lack of a better analogy, I do think it's a useful framework. If nothing else, it should a, uh, encourage us to get our act together in terms of competing on a variety of different fronts, but also look at where we went wrong in the original Cold War and look at the differences between the Soviet Union and uh, communist China today. And perhaps the most significant difference is that our economy was never fully you know, intertwined with that of the Soviet Union. And so we're gonna have to do a very difficult process of decoupling uh, from China's economy. We can talk about that later. Although I would say this is part of it. I mean, we used to invest on the order of 2% of our GDP um, during, during the Cold War in research and development. That has really waned. We do not in, invest anywhere near those levels. And so the Endless Frontiers Act, which is a bipartisan, bicameral bill sponsored by Chuck Schumer and Todd Young in the Senate and myself and Ro Khanna, a very progressive Democrat from around where uh, where you are, John, um, in the House, that would increase our public spending on research and development by $100 billion uh, on a per, uh, over the next five years and restructure the agencies that uh, that administer that funding, hopefully make them more agile and more suited to invest in key areas. And we've outlined 10 key areas for investment in R&D to include AI, machine learning, quantum computing, information systems, robotics, biotech, energy technology, cybersecurity, uh, et cetera. And so while that, that price tag may shock a lot of people, it is a drop in the bucket compared to the price of failing to compete successfully in these areas or the price of further dependency on China in these areas. Because what the coronavirus has revealed is how we have various single points of failure built into our supply chain that the Chinese could weaponize in the event of a crisis or war in much the same way they were threatening to cut off exports of key pharmaceutical ingredients and thereby plunge us into a sea of coronavirus. And so I'm excited about this. Uh, This is uh, what I would view a necessary but insufficient uh, condition for cooperating successfully. But we've got some good momentum behind it right now. That's great. I want to shift maybe from uh, economics or uh, uh, policy uh, in terms of sanctions and so on uh, to things that are sort of happening immediately. So one thing you mentioned was the coronavirus. 
Congressman Gallagher. Uh, what do you think about China's responsibility or not for the pandemic? And what can the United States do in response? Well, uh, from everything I've read, and I think we need to be honest about how difficult it is to get accurate information out of China, but it does seem fair to say right now, particularly in light of a very thorough uh, AP report that came out either yesterday or the day before, uh, that the Chinese Communist Party knew that the disease was spreading throughout December, uh, throughout January, denied that there was human-to-human transmission. Uh, the WHO echoed those denials publicly, and therefore you did have even American public health experts like Dr. Fauci in the third week of January saying, you know, we don't need to be concerned uh, the risk of human to human transmission is very low. I remember going on TV in the third week of January and saying, you know, no, we need to be more aggressive. We need to target a travel ban. Otherwise, we will see human to human transmission. And that very night, we saw our first case in Chicago. And then three days later, the president imposed the targeted travel ban. So, by all accounts, and the dust is still settling, and one of the functions of this task force will be to lay out what we see as the true story behind this. But it does seem to be that the Chinese Communist Party did everything possible to cover this up, to uh, prevent the transmission of transparent information to the WHO. Uh, they refused the help of our uh, health experts that we offered very early on in the crisis and thereby allowed the disease to spread. In fact, we know that they shut down travel from Wuhan to other parts of the country while allowing it to happen outside of the country. And so I do think they're culpable for the outbreak and the subsequent spread of this crisis and the fact that we now have wolf warrior diplomats aggressively using social media to propagate conspiracy theories, uh, suggesting that the United States was responsible for the outbreak of this crisis and the fact that we have so many useful idiots in the American media that seem willing to propagate the CCP talking points is very troubling and suggests we need to do a better job of waging information warfare and ideological warfare, or if nothing else, just understanding how the CCP operates, because it does seem to me, and this is where you guys could help me understand, because I'm not a sinologist, I'm not a, a China expert, I, I'm new to this. Everything I know, I, I learned from Matt Pottinger, who I met in Western Iraq in 2007, and who I made fun of for being a Mandarin linguist when I thought I was cool because I was an Arabic linguist. Uh, so I'm new to this game, <laughs> but it, it does seem that they've made a very aggressive shift under Xi, and the wolf warriors have really been unleashed. And to kind of tie it to the message of the wolf warrior movies, one and two, that gave them the name, there is a very receptive audience, it seems, within China for that type of aggressive behavior, standing up to the United States uh, and, and really asserting Chinese dominance internationally. Well, isn't that a phenomenon we've seen with other uh, authoritarian countries as they uh, seek to divert attention from problems at home by sort of stoking nationalist uh, impulses directed abroad. And uh, maybe we see that now with Hong Kong or the South China Sea. What do you, what do you think we should, uh, you know, American policy should be with regard to those two other areas where you see President Xi sort of pushing China forward closer to uh, confrontation with us? Well, when it comes to the South China Sea, I, th I think we've taken a, a massive and underappreciated step in the last three years by getting out of the INF Treaty. And by that, I mean, you know, if you sort of just look at the geography of the Indo-Pacific in general and the first island chain in particular, in order to have a sufficient combined 
Navy Marine Corps integrated sea power presence that we need there to deter the PLA Navy, we are going to need a whole host of INF non-compliant intermediate range ground-based missiles. And hopefully we'll be able to convince our allies within the first island chain to host those missile systems, though that tends to be a politically problematic thing. And in that way, we can get on the right side of the cost curve here and start putting Chinese ships at risk for very low costs in a way that the Chinese right now put our very expensive carriers at risk with a modest investment in the PLA rocket force. So to me, you know, whenever we talk about, you know, the first island chain and, and things like, or, I mean, uh, uh, island building uh, in the South China Sea, you know, the reflexive response seems to be, well, we need to do more freedom of navigation patrols. And I'm all for that. But if we don't have the integrated naval architecture to back up what we're doing on patrols, if we don't have more numerous and smaller, more capable ships constantly shifting positions in Indo-PACOM and constantly complicating the targeting cycle and the decision-making cycle and the OODA loop of the Chinese Communist Party, we won't be able to do a darn thing effectively. Uh, so that's uh, that's how I would tackle that issue. And now, because I've gone on, I've forgotten the second part of your question. Oh, I also uh, was asking about Hong Kong as well. So uh, which may not be yeah. a military response, but what can we do uh, in response to Hong Kong or, or Americans? Uh, should they say, look, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, other than you know political statements and symbolic acts, but you know it is a a port on the mainland of China. There's not yeah, it's not even like Taiwan in the sense it's a, a remotely defensible. Yeah, I'm not sure there are any you know easy military options when we're we're thinking about Hong Kong. I'll confess I was surprised at the alacrity with which uh, she moved on Hong Kong. I, I thought it would have been a little bit. Uh, wary uh, in the wake of the protests themselves and the outpouring of international support for the protests. But perhaps perhaps this is an effort to distract from uh, domestic tensions related to coronavirus, or perhaps they just sense an opportunity uh, geopolitically right now and, and think that the rest of the world will be too caught up with their own internal problems related to coronavirus to do anything about it. I think the most immediate thing we can do about Hong Kong, in addition to the strong statements we've seen coming from Secretary Pompeo and others, is to do a version of what Boris Johnson announced uh, yesterday and do everything possible to welcome Hong Kongers who are fleeing political persecution or other forms of per persecution into the United States, into allied countries. And that's not a, a great answer because in some ways you're you're admitting defeat, but that's perhaps the most immediate answer I can think of. And actually introducing legislation to that effect, uh, hopefully it will be finalized. Uh, it will be finalized this week or next week. So I, I had I that idea about two years ago and I wrote a few lonely op-eds about it, but I'm glad it's uh, something that you all are considering because it seems to me Hong Kong physically, who cares? It's just a port, but the value of it is human capital and financial capital, which moves so easily in this world now that, um, you know, in, in, in a way it could rob the value of Hong Kong from, uh, for anyone like the mainland that wants to seize it. But as you say, it is sort of admitting that we're not going to be able to do anything about keeping Hong Kong in the West at all. Well, can I add just a quick thought? Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, obviously, if we get to that point and, and if things continue to move in the direction they look like they're moving in Hong Kong, um, you know, I, th I think the real lesson should be we need to double, triple, quadruple down on our defense of Taiwan. And I've recently arguing for clarifying our policy of strategic ambiguity with Taiwan, doing everything possible to um, sell advanced weapons systems to Taiwan, uh, conditioning our future participation in the WHO on Taiwan's admission uh, and observer status. Um, 
you know, I, I, don't, I think we need to do everything possible to prevent she moving on Taiwan militarily or with more subtle means. And I do believe, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong because you pay more attention to this than I do. I do think he genuinely sees Taiwan as his legacy issue. And we may think that's totally outlandish. No way they would make a move on Taiwan. I don't know. I'm not convinced. I genuinely think that is unification of Taiwan with the mainland is what what she wants on his epitaph. But tell me if I'm wrong. No, I don't. I don't think it's uh, wrong. I I have a sort of different angle, which is, uh, and this may be uh, particularly suited for you as a member of Congress, is uh, you know the executive branch since the days of President Nixon have pretty much uh, conceded on Taiwan politically and have made it difficult for Taiwan to defend itself. Uh, and it seems to me you're farther ahead, and and other members of the caucus are farther ahead in wanting to reinforce Taiwan, restore political and military ties and the State Department would has ever been for the last 50 years <laughs> or 40 years. How, how would you uh, try to sh you know engineer this kind of sea change in American policy towards Taiwan? Well, I, you know, if if we don't have the opportunity to do it in, in this administration, I'm not sure we're going to have a better opportunity in, in a Biden administration, although I do think it's interesting right now. Uh, you know, we're at a moment where both Biden and Trump are attacking each other for being weak uh, on China. Uh, and I think even Biden senses that he has to reverse, you know, decades of uh, of bad uh, policy uh, when it comes to China and at least attempt to portray himself as being more hawkish than he was. And I do think, you know, there are smart uh, Democrats uh, out there that are that are advising Biden uh, like Eli Ratner's and other who, you know, have have a very clear eyed assessment of the CCP, though we may disagree on a lot of issues. But I'm not quite sure how you convince the State Department. I mean, John, you work there. You tell me uh, how to how to make bold moves like that. Uh, I've tried to do it by arguing uh, publicly. Uh, I know there is a lot of support in the White House and even within Foggy Bottom for such a policy change, but whether that could ever get approved is another story. Oh, don't don't insult me by saying I worked at state. I worked at Justice. <laughs> oh, that's what I meant. Right. Yeah, yeah. But you know, this uh, the the Justice Department. Alum of me, you know, my view is, you know, you in the House, you have the complete control of the purse, and a lot of what you're talking about, it seems you could be achieved through spending, right? You're just saying there will be arms sales to Taiwan in X amount, and. You know, if you have the president's or the president doesn't veto it and you don't put any, uh, you know, certification this and uh, loophole that, then the, the arms have to go. Right. You could even do, you know, a, a simple sense of Congress that says, you know, it is it shall be the policy of the United States to defend the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Taiwan and leave it leave it that vague. But that would still be less vague than our current approach. You know, obviously, Senses of Congress are not the most, uh, the strongest uh, mechanism, but there's a variety of, of, of muscles that Congress could flex. Yeah. So I, I want to jump in to, to maybe bring us back to another one of the areas that you're uh, focusing on in this uh, new congressional committee. And you mentioned you're on the subcommittee for basically the ideological competition. Um, you know, we've we've lost since the end of the Cold War uh, a, an understanding, I think, an appreciation of just how important ideology is. In fact, you know, we went through the whole end of history belief that you know ideology was essentially over, right? You know, liberal 
capitalist democracy. Uh, it, it was triumphant, and this was the way we were going to be going forward. And obviously, we then wouldn't have any any challengers in in a way that would uh, tax us beyond what would be largely small wars. And of course, history, as a historian, you know, should have known this. You know, history doesn't work out that way. So. Um, how do we get back to appreciating that um, Xi Jinping is an ideological believer and our battle is with the Chinese Communist Party and that this party, if you read what it says, it tells you very clearly what it wants to do. And that is actually to defeat the capitalist system. It, it sounds like we're back in the 1950s. People don't really take it seriously anymore. Uh, but you can bet that the people running China, uh, running the party in China do. So what are you doing specifically on that part of this um, th this group that you're of, uh, this part of the group you are of now? And also, how do you think about this ideological campaign that we're in and, and what do we do about it? Well, I should say I, I tried to think about it or force myself to think about it because, again, I, I don't come at this just so take everything I say with a grain of salt. I don't come at this with a deep expertise in the region. As I said before, I'm an Arabist and to the extent I have a an expertise in Congress, it's as a, a navalist, not not as a, a China specialist. Um, but I tried to think about it by by studying the latter stage of the Cold War and how Ronald Reagan did ideological warfare effectively, really throughout his administration, uh, but culminating in a speech he gave at the end of his administration at Moscow State University, uh, Gorbachev's uh, alma mater in May 1988, after his last fourth and last summit with Gorbachev. And I really think it's a remarkable speech, not only for the way in which he aggressively defends and simply explains American values, and I want to plant a flag there and come back to that, but also the way in which he uses Russian history, Russian literature to uh, illustrate commonality between the Russian people and the American people. And so I do think, to your point, we need to start any ideological competition from the perspective of our problem is with the Chinese Communist Party, not with the Chinese people. Uh, and in fact, Reagan actually did do this quite effectively when he went to Fudan University earlier in his administration. He's got this great line where he talks about American democracy and he says, in our country, uh, we say the people rule and it is so. And uh, I've just always loved that. It's just simple, but I, I'm sure I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And so I think part of this is public diplomacy. I think we've gotten a, a really good recent example of this from Matt Pottinger, uh, who talked about uh, the legacy of the May 4th movement uh, from uh, from the White House and, and really gave a remarkable, remarkable speech that I don't think got the attention it deserved. I think a lot of what's still well said in public has been a good example of this. Uh, there are some practical things we can do in terms of reviving instruments for waging ideological warfare, making sure Voice of America is more effective, making sure we even understand what political warfare is and the legacy of it throughout the Cold War. But ultimately, I think, and to get back to the flag that I planted before, it really starts from an understanding not of you know, the conduct of the Chinese Communist Party, but of American conduct. What are our unique sources of strength? Do we even believe in the righteousness of our cause? Do we, in, in fact, you know, maybe this runs counter to what I said about the emerging bipartisan consensus. I don't think there's any consensus right now in this country on the idea that we're the good guys and we deserve to win. And until we have that, quite honestly, it doesn't matter how much money we invest in research and development. It doesn't matter how much we hammer Huawei. It doesn't matter if we figure out how to revive the psychology strategy board and, you know, go after the wolf warriors on Twitter. 
and convince Twitter not to allow propagandists on its platform. All of that is secondary to the belief that our ideology and our values and the values of the free world are superior to the values of the Chinese Communist Party. And so that's a deeper uh, you know, set of issues that I, I think we've only scratched the surface on, certainly in Congress, and that I, quite frankly, myself, am trying to figure out a framework for understanding that. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but that's just kind of how I'm thinking about it now. No, it does. It's interesting that you're, you're um, well, first of all, uh, we're not, this is really a clear contrast with the Cold War uh, and, and how we thought about it in the Cold War with, when we understood and accepted that it was an existential threat. Now, we might say that China is not an existential threat, but it's clearly a threat. And I think people would believe it as more of a threat if they actually read what, what Xi Jinping and the, the Communist Party was saying in, in their documents, such as document number nine, which makes clear that that to them, this is a full out ideological war and they will allow absolutely no liberalization as as we think of it as, as a good. But I'm interested that you brought up Reagan, because you actually wrote a dissertation on the early part of the Cold War uh, called Strategic Adjustment. And uh, while I'm I'm pained that I was not one of the people that was helping advise you in that long list of folks that you had in there. Um, and as a historian, little, you know, I, I, I started looking at those charts and, you know, I couldn't couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't make my way through the morass because we just think we're just knuckle draggers as historians. But you're talking about how does a nation shift at the at the highest level, the grand strategy, uh, and and that adjustment. Are we there now? Are, are you know you you wrote a whole dissertation on this. Are are we in a moment? of strategic adjustment with what you guys are doing in Congress, with what the administration is doing? Is it as coherent as what you saw between the Truman and Eisenhower administrations? Or are we feeling our way across the river by touching stones? What are, what are we doing? So short answer is yes. I want to quickly go back to something you said, because I think it's really important. This idea that if people read what she says and writes, they would actually be alarmed. I mean, I don't think he's put it in this blunt of terms, sort of Reagan-esque terms of wanting to leave America on the ash heap of history. But certainly he has talked about explicitly the eventual demise of capitalism and the ultimate victory of socialism. Now, that could all be bluster and bluff, but certainly by 2049, she has a dramatically different for what different vision for what he wants the world to look like than what we want the world to look like. So I think you just made a very very important point there. You know, it's a point that um, certain uh, Australians like John Garno have made very effectively as well. And so I do think there's a, 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 and maybe to tie it to your actual question, I think we're waking up, you know, we're slowly waking up, but I do think we're at a period of massive adjustment right now. I mean, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I look back on sitting in the nosebleed section at the inauguration in 2017 as kind of the a, a, an inflection point for a massive adjustment of U.S. foreign policy, perhaps the biggest adjustment of U.S. foreign policy and grand strategy since the end of the Cold War itself, after two decades of prioritizing counterterrorism in the Middle East, we're saying, and maybe we're just saying and haven't, and we're not doing enough of it, but I think it's happening, um, that we're going to prioritize Indo-PACOM and, and the competition with China. And we're saying things that we would never have said five years ago. And even Democrats who believed in the responsible stakeholder hypothesis have admitted that that's wrong. So I do think we're at the early stages of, of a massive change. We're at the early stages of a new Cold War. But we tend to look back on the old Cold, Cold War through rose-tinted glasses and think, well, of course, 
it's obvious that we won. It's 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 obvious that uh, the Berlin Wall fell. It's obvious that, that you know freedom triumphed over Soviet communism. Well, it wasn't obvious to anybody that was actually in it fighting the Cold War at the time. In fact, there were multiple points throughout the history where we almost screwed the whole thing up and where we were almost at war with ourselves here domestically. And so I think this is like inning one of a, of a multiple inning game. And we still need to get some basic things right if we're going to have a chance of winning and competing successfully. I think that's that's a huge point, and and so what I what I'd like to ask is, I mean, you're you're in a vanguard, uh, being younger and and you know, relatively new to Congress, uh, that is going to see this relationship very differently from those who've been in Congress since the '70s or '80s, uh, and who uh, you know were were raised in essence in with the engagement paradigm as the only way to think about China. In fact, what I'd argue, and if I, I really don't know social science. I'm a historian, but you know the old, the paradigm shift. Uh, you know who, who um, you know the science. Uh, the the guy who wrote the science book. I'm just forgetting. It's always on the tip of my tongue. But you know the paradigm shift. You literally have a different view of the world. I think we're getting there with China. But the question then is, do you think it survives Trump? Meaning, if if we don't get into too much into you know, domestic politics in the program here, but you know if if Biden wins or or another maybe more quote unquote conventional republican wins do you see it going back to to business as usual do we go back to the engagement uh paradigm or or are we really a uh, by the way right stephen kuhn the the paradigm shifts are we really oh, yeah. in a paradigm well, the book shift? is the structure of scientific revolutions you That's cretin it. That's it. <laughs> no, not, not cretin just knuckle dragger thank you just be yeah. lucky i can i can sound out those big words um so, so do we go back do we go back or, or are we on an irrevocable path now? Uh, I don't think we're going back. First of all, I don't understand political science and I have a Ph.D. in it. I was a, I was an amateur historian <laughs> trapped in a political science department who grafted some bogus theory on top of some some decent history. Um, but oh. uh, I, I don't I don't think we're going back. I, I think there is a a naive belief among even some very smart members of the Democratic foreign policy establishment, a lot of whom are my friends, uh, that suggests tensions in the U.S.-China relationship are just a function of Trump, that it's just because of the way Trump does business, and that once Trump leaves office, we can we can get back to a, you know, a more cooperative relationship. But, you know, it's not going to go back to uh, you know, where it was before, but at least we can start to collaborate and cooperate on things like climate change, stability on the Korean Peninsula, you know, anti-proliferation, things like that. By the way, Mattis has a great takedown of this. I'm not talking about Jim Mattis. I'm talking about Peter Mattis. He goes systematically through all the four areas where everyone talks about where we our interests align with China and where we cooperate. And he systematically just demolishes the idea that China is interested in cooperating on all of them by highlighting China's abysmal record on aiding the North Korean regime, you know, proliferation and, of course, uh, environmental and climate issues. So I would commend Peter's work in that regard and the work of the Jamestown Foundation. Uh, but I don't think we're going back because one, domestically, I think there's a lot of support economically for what I would call made in America initiatives. I think that's a bit simplistic, but we can talk about that. Uh, and that unites Democrats and Republicans. But also the polling is really shifting. Right. I, I think negative views of China are at the their, their the highest point they've ever been. And it's not just America, by the way. The same is happening in Canada. I mean, and when you've pissed off the Canadians, you know, you've really done something wrong. And so I just don't think she would have enough subtlety or restraint to 
to uh, to seize a cooperative opportunity with the Biden administration, because I genuinely believe he thinks this is his this is his moment of opportunity. And I just don't see this relationship getting more cooperative going forward. I could be wrong, though. On that happy note, we've uh, run to the end of the show and we don't want to take up any more of your uh, time that you so graciously shared with us, uh, Congressman. And we want to thank you again for joining us on the Pacific Century and uh, also want to thank all of our listeners. And on behalf of me and Misha Oslin, thank all of you for joining us and uh, goodbye until next time. Bye bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.